Growing up, I went to church every single Sunday, quite often every day of the week. But I didn't hear a whole lot about the last days. I didn't really understand the whole thing of the chronological order of events as given in God's Word. And I certainly didn't understand this thing called the end times. But it's all over the Word of God. We're going to be taking a look at it as we talk about the answer for the last days. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Acts. Acts of the Apostles, and the second chapter, Acts chapter 2. Growing up, I went to church every single Sunday, quite often every day of the week. But I didn't hear a whole lot about the last days or the end times. Might have been partly my fault. Maybe I wasn't paying attention. But I did not even really understand the timeline of history, the mystery of history. In fact, the night that a preacher led me to Christ... He was just talking along, and he just kind of blurted out something about when Christ walked the earth 2,000 years ago. And my mind stopped right there, and I went, oh, is that when it was? (laughs) You know, I didn't really understand the whole thing of the chronological order of events as given in God's Word. And I certainly didn't understand this thing called the end times, the last days. But it's all over the Word of God. What is it? Well, it's a reference to a particular time period, but more specifically, the very tail end of that time period known as the last days. And it's mentioned in a message today that Peter is going to bring on the day of Pentecost, and we're going to be taking a look at it as we talk about the answer for the last days. Here in Acts chapter 2, we're going to start in verse number 12, and we're going to read down to verse number 21. It says, And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Notice he mentions that day of the Lord. It's synonymous with the end times or the last days. And that really is the answer for the last days, but we'll be looking at it more specifically as we delve into this passage. But let's have a word of prayer first, shall we? Heavenly Father, we ask you to give to us now listening ears, receptive hearts and spirits, 
And Father, we just pray now that thou wouldst help us to understand this truth from this passage. And Father, how I just pray now that you would use it in our lives in these last days to make a difference and to realize that Christ is the answer for these last days, in whose name we now pray and ask it. Amen. Amen. You know, there's some defining moments in history, and I'm talking about Bible history. Obviously, there was the creation of the world, the universe. Then there was the fall of mankind. That was a defining moment in history. Of course, the flood was, was huge, the world flood. And the Tower of Babel, the dispersing of the, the nationalities, was quite an event in history. And then I think the choosing of Abraham was really big. Abraham would be the first Jew, the nation of Israel, which we have yet to this day. And that was a big moment. Of course, the Exodus, the uh, Jewish people coming out of Egyptian bondage, was a defining moment in, in Bible history. And the conquest of Palestine was big. And the rise of the, the Jewish empire and then the subsequent fall to Babylon years later was a big event. But then the return from exile was a big event. And, and then the rise of Rome and some other things that we could point at that really all led to, to significant Bible events. Something even more contemporary would be 1948, though it's not in the Bible, but the return of Israel back to the land of Palestine is huge. I don't have time to go into that. But I think what we're looking at here in Acts chapter 2 is one of the most significant events in the Bible, in all the Bible, the, the day of Pentecost. And by way of review, we find that Christ has risen from the grave. He has discipled his followers for about 40 days, and then he gathers them together and gives them some parting instruction. And he says, tarry here in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. So for the next 10 days, they have a prayer meeting. And something happens on a Sunday morning that kind of takes them by storm, no pun intended, but they hear this, this sound of the, the mighty Russian wind coming from heaven. And all of a sudden, these little fire-like things kind of look like tongues, if you will. Uh, they descend upon the believers there in Jerusalem, and all of a sudden, they know they've been endued with power from on high. They're anointed. And so they take it to the streets. They go out and they begin to preach to the people, and the folks are shocked. Why? Well, there's various uh, nationalities there, and dialects, and accents even, and, and we count at least 15 different language groups there, and every one of them is able to hear the gospel message in their language. It, it blows them away. And, and so that's where we pick it up, and as we look at this passage, we see what I call, first of all, the false conclusion. They analyze the situation, and they misread what's really going on. In verse number 12, and they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? What meaneth this? What you've got there is the Jewish community. These are folks, these are Jews from all over the world, and they bring to Jerusalem the Jewish culture there, because it's Pentecost, they're there to celebrate a, fe a feast day, and they hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ preached in their language, and they're perplexed. If you put it in context, Judaism was very ritualistic. It, it was very ceremonial. It, it, was, it was all about the temple and, and the synagogue and the feasts and the rules and the regulations, and it was a very pious thing. And so there they were in their formal ritualism, and all of a sudden, these Galileans spill out into the street, and they start telling about Jesus Christ in their language. Notice in verse 12 again. 
And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. It's inevitable that the mocking would begin because it's not a new thing. With human nature, when you can't really explain something, you can mock it. They did that at the time of Christ. He went about healing people. And in Matthew 12, 24, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. And so they mocked Jesus Christ no less. Years later, they would mock the Apostle Paul on Mars Hill as he takes the gospel to Athens. The Athenians said, oh, what will this babbler say? And so on. And mockery has is, is long been a tool of the devil. And it's been something that can be intimidating. And if a Christian is weak, it can be a real bondage that, well, what do they say about us? And the fear of man will bring a snare. We won't witness the way we should witness because of the mockery there. And so they're mocking the disciples and they're trying to explain away this miracle and they're saying, these guys are drunk. They've been drinking early. And they they talk about new wine there in verse number 13, which means sweet wine. It means cheap wine. It would be the Mogan David or the Boone's Farm or whatever you might call it of that day. They're saying, these guys have been nipping some cheap wine and they're drunk. Well, in Ephesians 5.18, the Bible says, And be not drunk with wine, where is in excess, but be filled with the Spirit. You find a perfect example of what was really going on here. They weren't drunk with wine at all. They were filled with the Spirit. But the effect was similar because alcohol kind of turns you into a, another person. Uh, you're under its control. It's evident that there is something now uh, that's controlling you. And the disciples were being controlled by something. But it wasn't wine. It wasn't booze. It was the Holy Spirit. Well, in verse number 14, the Bible says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. What we have here now, folks, is going to be Peter's first official sermon. Now, he probably had preached in other places as Christ had sent them out two by two, but this is his first recorded official sermon in the Bible. You know, if you want to embarrass a preacher, ask him about his very first sermon. (laughs) I still remember mine. December 13th, 1981, I was scared to death, but not Peter. Uh, He's not scared at all. He had been scared uh, a few weeks earlier, but his chicken liver days are over, and what a difference now the Holy Spirit is making. He stands up and he boldly proclaims with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, he's going to prove that Jesus Christ was the very Messiah. He's going to hit a nerve, by the way, because this same crowd was amongst the group that had murdered their Messiah just a few weeks earlier here. So Peter stands up, and everyone thinks, he's going to crumble like he did before. He denied the Lord three times before a little servant girl, and now he's before all these men. What's going to come out of his mouth? Well, it's a different day. It's now the day of Pentecost. The, the wind, the sound of it had come through. The fire had fallen. They had spoken in other languages. There's a power there now. There's a boldness now there. It's a, a new age beginning here. And Peter stands up, hasn't prepared anything, doesn't have a note in front of him. This is all extemporaneous. But his first official sermon is going to be uh, organized. It's going to be uh, simple. It's going to be direct. It's going to be scriptural. But most of all, it's going to be Christ-centered. He's going to make a beeline for Christ. This is tailored, this message is tailored to the Jews. 
He, he says, ye men of Judea. We find out he's talking to the Jews. In verse 15, he says, for these, pointing to his fellow disciples, are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour. They had been accused of, of uh, hammering them down and getting drunk, and that's not a light charge. So he's quick to dismiss that there. That would have been shameful. He's not intimidated. He's respectful. He is firm. He's going to calmly show them their error, and he's going to be very convincing. In fact, later on, Peter would write this. In 1 Peter 3.15, he'd say, Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. Isn't that exactly what he's doing now on the day of Pentecost? He is armed. He is prepared. He has the sword of the Spirit. They have asked something, and now he's going to answer it. But they, they had the wrong conclusion. We call it a false conclusion. Secondly, we see what I call a foretold cause. Peter now is going to use the Bible to explain what's really going on. And it, it's something that had been prophesied centuries earlier. The cause of this Pentecost thing had been foretold in the Bible. And Peter's going to use the Bible to prove that. He's going to use preaching. Now, let me just stop here before we get into the message and, and say, we live in a day and age that in an effort to appeal to the whims of society today, and especially the youth, there are a number of churches, well-meaning churches, that are now emphasizing being culturally relevant. Let, let's be relevant to the culture in which we live in, and uh, let's cater to what they want in our worship. Let's, let's give them their kind of music if they want drama, if, if they want some kind of secular psychology with a little scripture woven in. Whatever it takes, whatever marketing it might take, uh, whatever seminars it might take, we, we have today this, this flurry in churches of activities and programs that are tailor-made and catered to the person who wants it new and modern and contemporary and hip and cool and whatever else you might want to call it. And we get inquiries here even at Fargo Baptist Church and folks will be asking about the church and, and uh, indicating that uh, we may do you a favor and come and visit your church, but uh, we want to know what, uh, what your music is like. And, and I, I, I think to myself, it's, it's Christ-honoring, it's godly, it's Christian, you know, uh, it should be. And then they ask about the programs, or what kind of programs you have. Now, that's well and fine, but if I were church shopping, you know what the first question I'd have would be? The preaching. The preaching. You know, we put this emphasis today on so many other things. At Fargo Baptist Church, the priority is preaching. It always has been. It always will be. And the nerve center of the church is not the praise band. It is the pulpit. See the difference? The emphasis here is on the preaching. We, we, we get our cue for that from the Bible, from the book of Acts. We find that the, the priority, the preeminence, was placed on preaching. As we look at the book of Acts, in Acts 5.2, it says, And daily in the temple and in every house they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. It was all about preaching in the early church. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, it says, They that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Later on, we find that the persecuting days of Saul end. He's converted, and guess what he does? In Acts 9.20, it says, And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. And we could go on from there, but of course, this all started with Jesus Christ. What was the highlight of the ministry of Christ all about? 
Well, it tells us in Matthew 4.17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You find Christ preaching, preaching. In Mark 1.14, says Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And throughout his entire ministry, he's preaching because that's where it's at. And he's instructing his disciples to preach as well. In Matthew 10.7, he said, And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And at the very end of the ministry of Jesus Christ, before he ascends up to heaven, in Mark 16.15, he said to his disciples, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So it was all about preaching. So Peter didn't have to wonder where to go with this thing. They've mocked the disciples. You're full of new wine. And he stands up, and he didn't hem, and he didn't haw. He began to preach. Because the priority in the New Testament church needs to be on the preaching. I think it's all summed up quite well in 1 Corinthians 1. Paul said in verse 17, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved... It is the power of God. And then he added in verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. May I say to you today, you ought not settle for anything less than a God-called, God-ordained, God-unctioned man of God preaching the Word of God if you're looking for a church. And really, the weakness of the contemporary church, the, the weakness of the ritualistic church is the weakness of preaching. We need to get back to preaching. Fargo Baptist Church was built on preaching. We're going to continue on with preaching. And so the apostles aren't drunk. What's going on here? Peter stands up. It's time to preach. In verse number 16, he said, but this is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. I've underlined in my Bible, this is that. This is that. This is the thing that Joel was talking about back in the Old Testament hundreds of years ago. He's going to now refer to the Scriptures because biblical preaching has doctrinal content. May I say that again? Biblical preaching has doctrinal content. So he's going to go to the Word of God to explain to them what's going on here. Our preaching ought to be doctrinal. And in fact, I've heard sermons, and I try not to be critical as I'm listening to sermons, but I I am what's somewhat analytical. And I've heard preaching in the past basically where, you know, a verse is read and the Bibles are closed, and then there's just one illustration after another, one story after another. And folks, we, we dare not rob God's people of the Scriptures. What does the Bible say? Well, we find here that Peter goes right to the Scriptures. He goes right to the Bible. And he goes to a passage in Joel chapter 2 that's well known to the Jews. The Jews knew exactly what he was talking about. And, and, and Peter quotes from memory Joel chapter 2 verses 28 through 32 and he preached to them from that passage. Notice in verse number 17. Here's what it says. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. He's talking about the last days in verse number 17, and that's a common expression. 
not just in the New Testament, but the Old Testament. You find a lot of last days talk in the Old Testament books of, of Isaiah, chapter 2, for example, or uh, Jeremiah, chapter 23, it talks about the last days. Ezekiel 38 refers to the last days. Hosea, uh, chapter 3, refers to the last days. And what is it talking about? Well, let's talk about the coming of Messiah. Let's start with a broad stroke here. The last days started with the coming of the Messiah. And it's a reference of the Messiah coming to set up his kingdom. But keep in mind, there are two comings of the Messiah, if you will. The first coming, he came to this earth to suffer and bleed and die and be an atonement for the sins of mankind, to be that sacrificial Passover lamb pictured and, and, and hang on the nails of Calvary there, paying for the sins of mankind. He came to suffer according to Isaiah chapter 53. And so there's that first coming. But then there's that second coming. He's coming back to rule and to reign as described in Isaiah chapter 9. So you've got this time period here that begins with his first coming known as the last days or the end times. It started with his first coming. Let's look at a few verses. 1 Peter 1.20 says, Jesus Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So he came to this earth, and the stopwatch starts, if you will. Uh, 1 John 2.18, little children, it is the last time. Uh, even now are there many antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. So that the, the last time really has been the last 2,000 years since Christ came to this earth. Hebrews 1-2 says, God hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. You've read some of these verses and you go, oh yeah, now, okay, I get it. Yeah, the last days really technically started when Christ came the first time. Uh, Hebrews 9-26, for example, says, but now once in the end of the world, hath he, Jesus, appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So what it's saying is these last 2,000 years are significant. Even that, that increment, that, that block of time of 2,000 years is very significant. I wish I had time to go into that. But you've got this thing winded, winding down here. And, and for the last 2,000 years, God has graciously reached out to the Gentiles like most of us and given us opportunity to be saved while at the same time he has chastened Israel for their unbelief. So Peter is giving us a time period now. He's saying the end times are underway here. Notice in verse number 18. He says, And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy. Now, he's saying they're going to prophesy at that time. Keep in mind, up to this point, <clears throat> the prophecy had been kind of relegated to the Jews and, and the, the Levitical thing, the, the, the priesthood and, and the, the Judaism. And so they're, <clears throat> they're the ones who had prophesied. They're the ones who had given us the Old Testament. It was a gift to Israel, this gift of prophecy. But now, the New Testament, I don't know if you've ever thought of this, is going to be written by Christians. That's different. We don't stop. We, now, still Jewish men, but Christian men, if you will. So you've got the New Testament being written by Christians and prophesying yet. And, and yet we find the gift of prophecy continued 
up until the Bible was completed. It's not open-ended now. If it was, it'd be a free-for-all. And you'd have all these religious hucksters saying, God told me to tell you, and I had a vision, I had a sign, I had a wonder, and here it is. But God in his wisdom, as he closed the Bible down in 95 AD with John on the Isle of Patmos, said, don't add unto the word of God. It's complete. And now the just shall live by faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. In fact, what serves not of faith is sin. We're to live by faith. Christ said, a, a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. So we go to faith. It's not as shallow as signs. How do you get it? Well, Romans ten seventeen says, faith cometh by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of God. You're, you're getting it right now. Hearing by the Word of God. It all goes back to the Bible, the completed Bible, and all that prophecy and all that science stuff. It it served its purpose, but now we live by faith. So now in verse number 19, Peter goes on as he's quoting Joel. He says, And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Well, when's this going to happen? Was it happening on the day of Pentecost? No, there was no blood and there was no smoke and vapor and all that. It's obviously future. So you've got a real broad amount, a real wide spectrum of time here that Peter is talking about starting there with Christ in the first century and it's still ongoing up to this point. And you need to understand about prophecy something very important. I want you to really listen to this. That prophecy, as you look at it, It's kind of hard to tell when this stops and this starts or the duration of time in between the prophecies. If you've ever been like to the Rocky Mountains or the Appalachians, you can see mountain ranges. You can see a mountain there out there in the distance and then you can see another one behind it and you can see another one over here, another one behind that. You have no idea how deep that valley is in between them or how far that gap is in between them. All you see are the mountain peaks. That quite often is what prophecy is like. You see the prophecy, you're not sure of the time in between. Sometimes it's not even in order. Read Revelation 12 sometime. Boy, that's a stumper. And so when it comes to prophecy here and when it comes to this kind of thing here, um, we find that the the smoke, the, the vapor, the fire, the moon turned to blood, all that stuff had not happened yet. It didn't happen on the day of Pentecost. It hasn't happened yet. When's that stuff gonna happen? Doesn't that sound an awful lot like the tribulation period? As you read the book of the Revelation, it's, it's almost identical here. You've got these vile uh, open and you've got hail and you've got fire and you've got uh, the sea turning to blood and you've got these, these trumpets sounding and all of a sudden there's thunder and there's earthquake and there's, there's hail falling and there's lightning and there's all this stuff. That's during the tribulation period. So Peter is, like Joel, kind of just bouncing around with it here, but saying this is the beginning of the last days. In verse number 20, he says the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. That's definitely tribulation talk, isn't it? That's definitely the book of the Revelation here. Now, know this about the tribulation, folks. While it's going to be a bloodbath and while it's going to be chaos... It's going to be perhaps the greatest revival of all time. You're going to have two witnesses come on the scene. They're going to be leading people to Christ, uh, primarily these Jewish evangelists. And there are going to be 12,000 from each tribe. And the 144,000 are going to go out and they're going to be reaching the world for Christ. And I'm telling you, persecution has always done that to the cause of Christ. 
Affluence and, and plenty has always been hard on the cause of Christ. We get lethargic. But boy, when persecution sets in, we turn to God. We look to heaven. And that's what's going to happen during the tribulation period. And, and Peter's just describing, okay, we're kicking it off here. Uh, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going on. He's trying to give that explanation. We see the false conclusion and we see the foretold cause there. But finally we see the faithful Christ. The faithful Christ is mentioned in verse 21. Peter says, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Those people there at Pentecost in Jerusalem were saying, What's going on? And Peter says, Well, this is a description of it. But notice where he heads with the whole thing. He heads toward the cross. I learned in Bible college that when you stand in the pulpit, open the Word of God, read your text, and then try to somehow find a beeline toward the cross. <laughs> Make a dart toward the cross. Peter does that. He's going to find a way to bring this to Christ. Now, his sermon had hit the mark. It, it was simple. It was understandable. Uh, he quoted Scripture. It was, it was Christ-centered. And on that note, he said in verse 21... It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Does that verse sound familiar to you? When I'm leading somebody to Christ, that's where I end up. Sometimes it might be Bible studies that have gone on for weeks. But I bring it home to that verse. In fact, it's quoted in Romans 10, 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what it all boils down to, Christ. Now, what Peter's quoting here is actually from Joel chapter 2, and I think it's verse number 32. But how does he make the transition here? I, you say, I don't get it. He's, <clears throat> he's talking about the moon turning to blood and fire and all this scary stuff. And it was. It was terrifying. I think what he's doing here is he's saying, here's this terrifying description of what to expect. Here is how to avoid it. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, we live in a world where Christ said most people are not going to heaven. We have a, a religious temperament where we think only guys like Hitler and Mussolini and maybe the mafia, maybe the drug cartel, folks like that will wind up in hell. But, but, but pretty much everybody else is going to heaven. Well, in Matthew chapter 7, Christ says the exact opposite. He said the road to hell is broad and wide and many are at. He said the road to heaven is straight and narrow and few there be that find it. And there are a lot of religious folks and a lot of well-meaning folks who think they're on that road to heaven. When the truth be known, they're going to be saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and that and the other thing? And Christ will say unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. That's going to be heartbreaking at the great white throne judgment. You've got a lot of people thinking they're going to heaven when in actuality they're not. And we find these words in Luke 3, 7, flee from the wrath to come. Flee from the wrath to come. Peter's been describing that wrath and now he gives him the answer for last day living. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in a day and age, and by the way, if it was the last days 2,000 years ago, these are the last days of the last days. If you understand Bible prophecy at all, it could not be closer. We are on the precipice. We are on the doorstep. We, we are waiting, and, and our, our toes are curled over the threshold because it's that close to happening. Christ is coming back soon. And you've got most people coasting through life 
fully unaware that most people aren't going to heaven. There's fire in their future. And <clears throat> if you ask them, where would you go if you were to die? They'd say, well, I think heaven. Well, why? Well, I'm, I'm living a good life. In actuality, they're trusting in their good works to take them to heaven. And if you're to just take them through God's law, the good person test, I call it, they would see from the first commandment they're guilty of breaking it. They place other things ahead of God. They're guilty of the second commandment. They've invented a God of their own imagination, one that suits their lifestyle. They've brought God down to their standard. And they've said, well, to me, God is like this or God's like that. They've invented a God of their own imagination. It's the darling sin of humanity. And then you talk about the third commandment, taking God's name in vain. You ever done that? God says, I will not hold him guiltless that taketh my name in vain. That's serious. God's keeping record of that. God also talks <clears throat> about honoring his day. Have you always honored the Lord's day? Have you always honored your parents? We see the fifth commandment there. Have you always obeyed him immediately, perfectly, with a good attitude, fully? How about... That one about not committing murder. You say, well, I feel better now, Pastor. I wasn't doing so good on the first five. Christ comes along and he says, if you've even been mad, bitter, angry towards someone, it's murder of the heart. You have committed murder. How about the seventh? Thou shalt not commit adultery. You say, well, I haven't done that one. In the same message, Christ says, if you've lusted after the opposite sex, you've committed adultery with them already in your heart. It's adultery of the heart. The eighth one speaks about not stealing. You say, well, I, I'm not a thief. Well, if you've taken anything at any time, you are a thief. It could be something small that you brought home from the office. It could be a cookie from your mother's cookie jar when you were a kid. It could be the boss's time with too long of a lunch break makes you a thief. The ninth commandment says, thou shalt not lie. And who could with a straight face say they've never told a lie. That in itself would be a lie. So we're liars. And then the tenth speaks of not coveting. You ever wanted something you didn't have, something someone else had, something you didn't even really need? Were you ever discontented, ungrateful, unthankful? That's covetousness. So if we're trying to work our way to heaven, we're doing a miserable job of it. Obviously, keeping the law is not the way to go to heaven. In fact, the law was given as our schoolmaster to show us how desperately we need Jesus Christ. It'd be like if they found the cure for cancer, and I didn't have it, but you did, and we both got the news together, I would go, great, wonderful, yeah. You would go, give me that stuff, I need it. Because now it applies. Now it becomes personal here. Well, there's only one remedy for sin. And it's not working your way to God. In fact, we're told it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. The remedy is not getting baptized, joining a church, taking communion, buying Girl Scout cookies, helping little old ladies across the street, or doing any other good work. Because it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done. So what is the remedy? What is the cure? There's only one. We read in Romans 5, 9, being now justified by His blood, Jesus' blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. We're told to flee from the wrath to come. What is the remedy? It's the shed blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. And putting our faith in that shed blood. 
That's Peter's sermon in a nutshell. We'll take a look at it more in depth next time. But he says in verse 21, It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's talking there about God's grace. That's how we get saved. It's the grace of God. And really, the answer for last day living is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you have that? Do you honestly know Him as your Lord and Savior? Have you been saved by grace? It begins with being born again. Can you describe a time in your life when you heard the gospel message, you changed your mind about your sin, it's called repentance, you turned to Christ and you put all your faith in that blood he shed on Calvary's cross to save you. And you were born again the Bible way. A time, a place, an experience. Well, Peter's leading up to that. And to these Jews there in Jerusalem on, on, on Pentecost, I'm telling you, the name of Jesus Christ was anathema. It was taboo. You did not mention it. They had just murdered him. But that didn't stop Peter from heading to the cross and explaining salvation in through and by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He's the Savior of the world. He's the only way to heaven. In fact, at the birth of Christ, the angels heralded his birth by, by telling Joseph, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, means Savior, for he shall save his people from their sins. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. If you were to die today, where would you go? Friend, you can know for sure you're going to heaven when you die. You can have a salvation that will change your life and a salvation that you will never lose. Well, let me just say in closing, if you're a student of the Bible, there's no question whatsoever that we are in the end times of the last days. And Peter lays it out and he brings it home by saying, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that is the answer for these last days in which we live. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.